This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and Kevin Wilson is one of my favorite, favorite writers. And if you don't know The Family Fang, you probably do know Nothing to See Here, which was a pretty big hit a couple of years ago <laughs> with the twins. And we'll come back to the twins in a second. His new novel is Now is Not the Time to Panic. But here's the thing. This book is gorgeous and it has a big beating heart and it's really short, which you tend to do with your novels, but you cover so much ground here. But I want to start by asking you to tell us the line of copy that this book is built around. So the line is, the edge is a shanty town filled with gold seekers. We are fugitives, and the law is skinny with hunger for us. And at points in Now is Not the Time to Panic, you've got folks who are saying, well, it's a line from Rambo. It's a this, it's a that. <laughs> Actually, it's the product of a couple of teenagers, Frankie and Zeke, who are wonderful kids. I love these kids. But they're creating art. So you are talking about family in this book. You're talking about friendship. You're talking about the nature of art. You're covering a lot of ground, Kevin. A lot, a lot <laughs> of ground. I want to talk about how this book started for you, because kind of famously, nothing to see here, you wrote in 10 days in a sort of personal residency. And I think this didn't happen in quite the same way. No, it was written over a much longer course of time and had been building in my head for even longer. You know, that that line had been resonating and repeating and i was just kept trying to figure out the way through it though the what the way that my brain tends to work is that i i have recurrences and obsessions and they just keep looping and each time i think oh i'll write about it and i'll be done with it you know but i've written three books that have spontaneous human combustion <laughs> uh, yes, you yeah. know like <laughs> Each time I'm like, oh no, it's not, it's not gone. I, I'm still, I'm still with it. And so with this line too, I kept trying to figure out how am I going to find my way through so that I can kind of get it out of my head. And in this book, eventually, I hope, who knows, maybe it comes back, but this was the book where I thought this is where I can place it and it'll be safe, and I can leave it alone. It's set in 1997, so this is not a land of cell phones. This is not a land of the internet brings everything to your doorstep, and both of which are very key points in the narrative. But also, it's set in a tiny town in Tennessee called Coalfield. And I love this line. This is the way you describe Coalfield. Coalfield controlled how the outside world came to you. And I don't think this story could have happened outside of a town like Coalfield. So can you just set the landscape? Can you just walk people through sort of what this town looks like to you? I can very easily walk you through this town because it's where I grew up, you know. And so I do think, you know, you're so correct that it's not just setting is not just place. It's place and time. And that's what I'm always trying to figure out. And for me, I think, you know, because I grew up in the 90s and I'm I'm pre-internet, that's what's comfortable for me. But it's also just when I look back on my my teenage years, it's the lack. You know, it's always the lack. That's and so I grew up in a in a tiny rural town called Winchester, Tennessee, um, without access to to pretty much anything. You know, there were no no bookstores, you know, uh one movie theater, but again, like anything that I wanted, I knew it was somewhere else, right? And like, not even New York, like New York was a foreign country to me, but I mean, even like Atlanta or Nashville, those those were distances that were too far. And so when you grow up with the lack, you grow up knowing that you're not getting things that other people are, and the way that things come to you are kind of jumbled. You make do with it by kind of making stuff up. You kind of build things on your own and you build little worlds uh, and you live inside of them because sometimes they're a little bit easier than that tiny town. So that was super comfortable for me to write about these characters who want something, know they can't have it yet. And so to fill the time, they're going to make things. I'm a Southern writer, I think, you know, like I write about the South, but honestly, like having spent time like in Maine and New Hampshire, I lived in Massachusetts for a while. And mm -hmm. ago, 
I, I was, I would go through parts of Maine. I was like, this is a South to me, you know, but my wife grew up in Atlanta and that's not the South that I knew. So what I know is rurality, right? Like what I know is rural spaces. And, and so for me, that's what I wanted to write about that, that isolation mm-hmm. that born that creates weirdness. And then you got to figure out what to do with it. Well, and when you say you've got to figure out what to do with it, in some cases you have to hide it because weirdness is not always looked upon kindly, especially in small spaces where this idea that if you conform and you're part of something that's bigger than you, you're normal. And that normal designation is really, in a lot of ways, and I don't think I'm overstating it when I say it's dangerous. It is not helpful to people who don't, let's say, color within the lines in their specific community. And Frankie and Zeke are both kids who are navigating the space. I mean, they're teenagers. They are so sweet, these kids. They are so sweet. I'm so fond of these characters. But they come together sort of out of odd circumstance. Um, And I am talking to you, who I once had a very long conversation with about potato guns. I think the very first time we met, we had a very involved conversation about potato guns. And I was like, this guy is great. I can talk to him about great books and potato guns. But the kids meet at the town pool. And there's this wild contest, which I did not know other people did, because we did this in New England. Only we did it in the sort of harbor, um, greasing watermelons and making the children chase after them because it tires out the children (laughs) and the adults can walk away and be like, they're fine. They're chasing a greased watermelon in water. There's no problem here. Hello, welcome to a long time ago in a land far, far away. Um, And I'm delighted to know that you had the same kind of stuff, but this is where they meet. And Zeke reaches out first. Yeah, so uh, that yeah, I'm I'm pretty jazzed to hear that you know about Greece watermelon contest too. <laughs> I mean, there's that rurality and there's that lack of internet, but also when I look back on my past, I'm like, how did I not die like eight different times? Oh, you know, like like trying to like push a greased watermelon to the edge of the pool is mm-hmm. like sixteen year olds are dunking you underwater. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just sheer luck. But you're right. So Zeke. Uh, And I think that's the big thing is that Frankie has always lived in Caulfield. This is her life and it has swirled around her forever. And then there's this new boy who is Mm -hmm. just here for the summer, Zeke. To my mind, you know, Zeke reaches out to her first because um, he's new, but also he can try out a new identity if he wants to. Right. I'll, I'll be the one that's like straightforward and I'll reach out and. I'll even call myself Zeke, even though that's not the name I go by when I live back in Memphis. It's it's an opportunity to like pretend to be somebody. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily what Frankie has ever had. But with this one person, maybe she can reinvent herself. Sometimes it only takes one person. Oh, I think more often than not, it only <laughs> takes one person. I mean, this idea that you're going to throw yourself into a pool full of crazy children. But Frankie does something that I love. And this is, you write about siblings in a way that I'm very fond of, possibly because I'm very fond of my sibling. But she gets her older brothers who are maniacs, triplet maniacs, to help Zeke. And he's just like, what just happened here? And these boys, just these giant boys come out of nowhere and they're like pushing him to the... Zeke wins because of these giant boys who are just like, of course we're going to do what our little sister says because she's adorable and we're just going to do it. And she asked and whatever. So Zeke doesn't have that, though. He doesn't have so He's an only child. He's got, we're not going to get into his backstory too much because that would spoil some of the fun. But they're very different people. Yeah. It, you know, Mila, I don't know if I ever really gave much thought to the fact that one is an only child and one is not. But it's so huge. And and for me, having having a sister... I'm I'm just super interested in like feral children, you know. You <laughs> yes, always, I know. <laughs> you can't always have the you can't always have the feral children at the forefront of the right. story, and so I've got these feral kids, but I've got this like lion tamer, you know, who is who is who is Frankie, uh, and I can get play off of that. But also, just you know, you're you're bound by blood with siblings, right? Yeah. But there's so much variation within that <laughs> that uh, that's kind of what's what's fascinating to me. But maybe you both have the same parents. So you're made by the same blood, but you're super different, but you're bound together. You just get so much play out of that, not just in stories, but just in life. You know, I think my sister and I are just our entire lives will be like looking at each other, figuring out how we got from point A to point B, Mm -hmm. how we were made by the same thing. You know, Mm -hmm. I think 
in some ways, it's um, incredibly reassuring just to have another person who's made of the same things as you just to check in. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's true. If I was all by myself, yeah, I would feel yeah. I would feel much more insane. You know. But I also think being able to check memory, because there'll be times where my brother will say to me, well, don't you remember that? And I'm like, dude, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and it's just, I mean, you're just built differently, even though sometimes you can finish each other's sentences. I personally, I think having a sibling is kind of great. But one of the things that I do appreciate quite a lot about your novels, too, is that you're very funny. And sometimes it's like physical, really physical comedy. And other times it's just a line of dialogue. You're like, oh, <laughs> oh, hello. So the twin, the triplets, excuse me, they steal a copier and it lives in Frankie's garage. And so you've got Frankie and Zeke and they're a little bored. They also do, they're aware that art has power. They are aware that they do not want to be in this tiny town for the rest of their lives, but it's the start of the summer. So there's no school. And time in the summer when you're that age, it moves like molasses in January in Boston. So here are these two kids unsupervised and they decide to make art. And this is where, <laughs> this is where everything starts to get interesting. So I want to talk about the evolution of the new book with you. I mean, do you start with the kids? Do you start with this idea? I know you started with the line. I know you started that line of text that we opened the show with. But the kids, the art, can you ever separate them? I don't think that I can. I mean, mm -hmm. I think so many of the books that I write, you know, they're almost always about families or found families. You know, I'm a super domestic writer, you know, like I don't want my characters to ever leave their home. You know, I just want to keep them in a certain space, figure out how they make that place uh, hospitable. Um, but the other thing that I almost always write about is just like, what does it mean to make something? What does it mean to make art? And and kids are a made thing, right? So I feel like it's hard not to 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 blend those two things together. And so in my first novel, you know, The Family Fang is about parents who decide to turn their children into works of art, you know, and that was great. But then what I wanted to focus on here is what does it mean to be made and then decide to make something else before you make, you know, a new family for yourself. So what does it mean to be young, to have ideas of what's inside of you? And then finally actually make those things. I don't know. It was, it the, the line came first, yeah. but Frankie was immediate. You know, I knew that it was, what does it mean to be on the precipice of becoming someone else? And how is art going to be the thing that facilitates that? Because, because that was my life, right? Right, right. And she's such an excellent baby giraffe of an adolescent character. I mean, she just, she's a baby giraffe. She's great. I love her to death. And her mom... We have to talk about Frankie's mom for a second. Because Frankie's mom knows her boys are a handful. And she's just like, oh, no. When the art starts appearing around town, she looks at the boys and she's like, did you do this? And no one suspects the baby giraffe in the middle of the living <laughs> Which I think is a really nice touch because part of what Frankie is desperate to do is make people notice that she's there. Yeah, very much. I mean, the mom immediately is like, oh, my feral you know, triplets <laughs> did this. And again, it's that beauty of when you're when you live in a, a relationship with siblings, you kind of know who each person is and how they're perceived. And so I think Frankie knows, oh, I can hide a little bit here. But you're right. Like she wants to be known. She wants to make herself known. But like, you know, art is difficult and it's scary. And she has this little book that she's writing of her own. But here's this opportunity to make something with another person. And you can blend yourself with this other person and put it out into the world secretly. And this is a tester, right? If it fails, I have a few excuses for why it might have failed. And if it succeeds, it's that little window to the world that I want to get to. For her, that's that's the beauty of it. It's temporary. It's with this other person. It's secret. And we'll see what happens. One of the things I love, too, is the way Frankie and Zeke actually don't see art in the same way that you haven't posited as like the kids against their parents or the kids against older. It's their peers, their peers. And they're kind of like, mm, yeah. And Frankie's like, well, it doesn't matter what other people say about the work we do. We know what it means. And Zeke is like, well, no, actually, because things really get out of hand. 
And they get out of hand in a way where you point out in the book, and I'm totally stealing this line from you, that if you lived in a pre-internet time, you have no idea how big a deal it was that this becomes a thing and a movement. And suddenly, and people are impacted. I mean, a a kid dies falling off of a water tower because he's trying to put up a poster too. I mean, this is not to make light of what's happening, but it goes through the town, pardon me, like wildfire. (laughs) I mean, it takes, and suddenly we're seeing satanic panic moments and, you know, poster militias who these guys are drunk all the time and they're playing with guns on Main Street, trying to keep the posters from going up. It's wild, and yet it feels really, really true to life. Because if you've lived through those moments, you know, when you're old enough, you've lived through those moments, and they're not all online. So I think, like, <laughs> now you talk about, we talk now about going viral, right? right. But there's a mechanism in place mm-hmm. that makes that possible. So right. pre-internet, how do you go viral? Like, how do you reach a larger, you know, world and for so many things it was just incredibly traditional means of dissemination that's tv that's newspapers Mm -hmm. that's the publishing world with with books and so but what was kind of lovely about that time period too is that there's all these secretive ways like graffiti or zines you know indie bands where i would send five dollars in an envelope and get a seven inch record back you know like so there were all these like little hidden things if you could find them And that's what I was interested in. Mm -hmm. But you're right. Like to go back, the other thing is like they make this thing. And I think both of them have competing feelings about what it means to make something, which is, you know, Zeke is we're responsible for whatever happens after we make it. And and Frankie is I don't think that's true. We make it. We get the pleasure from it. It's ours. And whatever happens next is beyond our control in some ways. And and those are the two things I'm always thinking about with art. Uh, yeah. I do think, though, I mean, I've been a bookseller for a really long time, and I do think that once you put work into the world, it's kind of like, well, it's out of your hands what people do with it. I mean, let's hope they're not gross and creepy about it, but, you know, you put the work out, and then the reader, in this case, you know, brings their own experience to whatever you've put on the page, and it's going to be different for every single person. I mean, I do believe that there's a book out there for every single person because there's just not, no one approaches story in exactly the same way. I mean, there are only so many stories, you know, guy walks into a bar, a woman <laughs> leaves her family. You know, I get that piece of it. But in terms of the actual writing of the story and the interpretation, and it's watching Zeke and Frankie sort of struggle with the interpretation part. I mean, they're kids, they're babies, their brains haven't finished cooking yet. Well, yeah, I I love that idea that you're saying, like, as a bookseller, but like, I feel that too. And I think Mm -hmm. I've tried to be like, super deliberate in how I think about the books that I write, which is Mm -hmm. like, I got I got the pleasure of making them they lived inside my head. And that was the wondrous part of it for me. And once it touches the open air, like, that's it, you know, and it's why I try not to think too much about like, if people hate the book, or if it's not for them, because like, that's beyond my control in some ways. And but but these kids, they're so young, you know, they Mm -hmm. see it go out into the world and it's a little difficult to be misinterpreted or to not be able to talk about it, because in some ways it's so much harder for them to divorce themselves from the made thing because they're so close to it. And also copycats. No one likes a copycat. (laughs) I shared their rage when people started mimicking them and not necessarily mimicking them well. But some of the most fun for me, at least as a reader, was going through and as you were sort of delivering other people's opinions of the work or their interpretations, and some people would say, oh, well, you know, we're going to Zeke's grandma's Bible (laughs) Bible group going through and saying, oh, no, no, we know this is from Revelations. And of course, they can't find the line because it doesn't exist. Everyone has their own piece that they're bringing to it. And yet there are these two kids who are just like, ha ha, here we are. I mean, at one point they plaster this sort of ratty rundown house where teenagers hang out and drink beer and do things we shall not mention, but they plaster it and they're just kind of like, well, this is great. And this is cool. And then two other kids who pass out and realize they're in trouble because they've spent the night in this ratty, disgusting house. They set off a whole slew of stuff basically by lying and saying, well, we were kidnapped. And it's like, um, no, you were teenagers and you really just don't want to get in trouble. So this snowball just starts and no one can stop it. 
Yeah. And it's this moment where, you know, Zeke and Frankie, they're like, let's make a weird thing that people Mm -hmm. will notice. And again, it touches the open air. And then there are these other teenagers who are like, let's take this thing and make it weird. And this will get us where we need to be. And, you know, they're both using it for their own purposes, but you're the owner of it. And so you start to realize, oh, everyone's going to take it. Everyone's going to do something with it. A tourist economy pops up around this. I mean, this is how crazy this stuff gets and how sort of out of hand this art project gets. Suddenly you have a tourist account. People are coming to stay in the ratty hotel in town that doesn't even have water in the swimming pool. And they're like, yeah, we don't care. We'll just hang around the pool anyway. So they're hanging around an open pit and just, you know, drinking beer and hanging out. And I mean, I love these little details, right? Like you're just in the moment where you're like, I can totally see that happen. I can totally, totally see that happening because the chaos is there. The panic is there. The absurdity of it all is there for the reader. And yet the people who are involved are kind of like, what? What do you mean absurd? (laughs) I don't understand what you're talking about. So how are you balancing though? Because one of the things you do incredibly well in your novels is making sure that you don't suddenly get slapsticky for the sake of being slapsticky, that there's always a payoff for either the moment of humor or the physical act of humor, but it's never just sticky. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, I think what I'm always trying to go for is um, I, I, it's, it's hard to be funny. You can't really plan mm-hmm. on, you don't know what will land with people. So oftentimes what I'm thinking about is just like absurdity right. and absurdity just exists constantly in the world that we live in. And to my mind, the humor comes from the way different people traverse absurdity, like right. how they try to normalize it or mm-hmm. how they like freak out because they want to build their own like weirdness on top of it. And so for me, that's where I get a lot of the humor is just the different ways that people respond to the absurdity around them. That's just always there. And, you know, in the 90s, too, like people coming to go see this poster or wanting to be in your source, like I just feel like people would congregate around anything that was holy or evil. You know, like you wanted to be close to the source of these things. You know, you go somewhere where someone has seen the Virgin Mary and you can Mm -hmm. get holy water from a well. And like, of course people are going to show up. The love that you have for your characters and the compassion you have for them, but the space that you give them, I think it would be really easy for someone to cross that line and be like, well, I need you to do this. And I sort of feel like they just do what they do. But can we talk about your process for a second and the rewriting? Because I know you are, a very specific kind of a rewriter. So let's talk about what happens when you, let's start with the idea and then how you get to the thing itself. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, just the way that my brain works, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know, I don't want to blame it all on this, but I think part of it is having Tourette's and like having these mm-hmm. constant like ticks and constant yeah. recurrences. And I also mm-hmm. just have unwanted thoughts that are always swirling around my head. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I write, it tends to work like that. Like, I pick up a topic, I work Mm -hmm. with it, I worry it, and I know it's going to leave for a bit and I know it's going to come back. Like you just always know that it's Mm -hmm. coming back. And so that's actually the way that I write too, which is like, I write super fast, but also I'll write to the point of losing the thread. And then I just immediately start back and I write and I, and I basically am rewriting the story again. And I do that over every time I hit a pause, I loop. So I'm writing the story, you know, hundreds of times, just super fast on that loop. So each time you go back around, you're seeing things that you miss. The characters gain nuance, like not not later in the story, like, oh, I now understand them. It's like that first scene over and over and over again until you're like, okay, that is what she would do. And you move forward and you're like, okay, that's what they would do. This is the nuance I can give them. And you know, as far as my characters, like, I, it's weird when people are like, you know, I love my characters or I hate to see them go. Like, I know that they're fictional. Like, I, it's it's fine. Like, that's fine for me. But I once had a teacher that was just like, you know, if you don't take care of your characters, who will? And I've just always taken that to heart. That is like, my job as a writer is to get these characters from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes it will be painful, right? Like, there are times where I can't avoid the pain that is coming for those characters. But all I really am trying to do is how can I navigate this story and get them from here to here 
in a way that they're transformed or that they can find a moment of grace. Not to say their lives will be forever better or they're completely happy, but it's just while they're in my care for this amount of time, can I get them where they need to go? And sometimes the answer is no. You know, you Mm -hmm. have to leave them somewhere you don't want to. But if I can, always, my goal always is to try to get them there. And I think that means that I spend a ton of time making sure that what they're doing is correct, that they that they are in control in some ways of, mm-hmm. of what comes next. Did anything surprise you as you were writing this book? I mean, you spent a lot of time with this book and it's a little more personal in some ways than some other earlier work, but did anyone surprise you? Did anything surprise you that isn't a spoiler? Yeah, I mean, I think I could say like, I had an idea for the end of the book um, and I wrote it and I just remember it almost felt like inevitable that that I was going to do it that way. And part of it was just based on some personal circumstances of like the origins of this book, you know, in some ways are, are connected to some personal things. And I was always so glad to be able to be like, this is a fictional story. But the deeper I got into the narrative, again, it's hard not to hold on to those things from your past. And the book wasn't working. And I just remember my wife, and my agent, Julie Bear, they both read it. They're the only two people that read anything I write. Like nobody else reads anything. But both of them were just like, do you want to take another tr- crack at the ending? Like, do you feel like you could do something more with it? It doesn't feel like you. It doesn't feel like honest. And I just said, I don't know. I feel kind of like bound to it. And they said, but it's fiction. You know, it's it's something you can make up. And the moment that happened, like the story just radically changed in the last 50 pages in a way that like, I'm just forever grateful. But again, it was like the beauty of the moment to be like, I'm not bound by like my own history. I'm not Mm -hmm. bound by like, that's why I chose fiction. (laughs) Like, that's why I write fiction so that I can bend and twist this stuff into a way that makes sense to me. Um, So, yeah, it was huge. You know, I knew always that the book was going to resolve itself in some way, but I didn't. Mm -hmm. I really didn't know how. And I have to say the ending that last 50 pages, I'm very glad you got where you got because... I don't want to think about this book having a different ending. I mean, that's how organic it is and how inevitable some of the pieces are. And um, I like being able to think that actually Frankie and Zeke are okay. You know, and yes, they're fictional characters, but I, you know, listeners will know I'm a full body reader. And I just, I like knowing that these kids are not bound by necessarily all of the bad stuff. I mean, yes, you bring your stuff forward with you, of course, but they're not completely bound by it. They're both figuring out how to be adults in the world. And it's different for each of them, obviously. But I think that's a really cool, loving moment that they each get, especially when I think about some of the stuff that happens towards the end. And now I'm going to dance away from that again. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But can we talk about influences for a second? Can we talk about how you got to be Kevin Wilson? Because you were writing stories at a young age. You had your first agent at a young age. You were writing stories and placing them in college and whatnot. When did you switch to writing novels? And and seriously, who are some of the writers who got you to where we're having this conversation? Yeah, I think it's so like the writers that really influenced me that like shaped me. Um, and and I think I'll talk about contemporary because it's easy to go back, you know, like Shirley Jackson and Carson McCullers and all those people like made me. But like when you're looking for like models in the world that you want to be a part of, um, really, it kind of comes down to just a few. And and they're George Saunders and Amy Bender. Um, because they, they, you know, they, they started in short fiction, you know, and I love their short fiction, but what I was trying to figure out is how do you stretch magic and weirdness and absurdity out beyond that conceit? Like, how can you do that? And I think that was a huge seismic shift for me moving into the novel was I, maybe that the magic can't be quite so bizarre in a novel. Like for me, I want to like explore weirdness in a different way, but they were huge. Like they showed me how to do magic and weirdness but with like tenderness, you know, Mm -hmm. with Mm -hmm. like empathy and also with humor, like both of them are super funny writers to my mind. But, but then the other one, I mean, that really, I feel like so much of my work is indebted to her in ways that I didn't fully realize is just, is Ann Patchett. Yeah. Um, Because all of Ann's books are radically different, Mm -hmm. but they are held together by some pretty common themes. And a lot of them are, how are we made? And then how do we make a family from these disparate pieces and you know so many of her books are these these people from all these different circumstances 
realizing that if they just hold on to each other for a little while, they'll be stronger and they can get through that moment. And once I started reading her books, I was like, oh, okay, this is this is what I'm doing in a lot of ways. And this is how I can can keep moving it forward. And I don't know when when I read her, it it unlocked just just everything for me. And and again, she's a writer, too, that I believe just feels such tenderness for the characters that mm-hmm. she creates, you know, and again, like. I'm not being like every book should have a happy. They shouldn't. Like if you can find a moment of grace before things fall apart, like Mm -hmm. that's what I'm interested in. Like you can't control the trajectory of someone's entire life, but you can find a moment of grace before things fall apart. And I just think she's really great at, at doing that. So, so really and truly like those three writers Mm -hmm. kind of opened it up for me. And then my work just really started to change as like, well, I mean, I have kids that burst into flames, but so much of my early work was like, what is it like to be a normal person in a world of magic? You know, the world is magical. And, and then I was like, you get older and you're like, oh, the world's actually not that magical. Like it's pretty like crappy. And so then what I started to write about is what does it mean to to have weird magic inside of you and try to navigate a normal world? And I actually think that's harder than being a normal person navigating a magical world. Mm-hmm. And so the work just kind of inverted a little bit where there is weirdness and there is magic, but it's pretty internal. You know, the world around them is is pretty boring and ban- and banal. And you got to figure out how to make your place inside of it with this fire or this strangeness or these hidden words inside of you. And I don't know. I think I think Saunders is pretty good at at, like he helped me figure that out, too. You know, I do want to bring up one thing, though, and it, it partially goes back to what you just said, too, about the evolution of your work. But you also had your first child around the time that the family Fang came out. And you've said this in previous interviews, and I kind of love this line. You're like, well, I write in bursts because honestly, like, do I really want to tell my kid that I have to go off and write? I'd rather play with my kid if he says, dad, play with me. And I love this idea that you're sort of, you do the work and you enjoy the work. You clearly love the work. But also you found a way to just say, you know, this is, this is the box it fits in. And yet here's my tiny person and my tiny person needs me. And tiny people are complicated. <laughs> Oh, they're complicated. But you were also really nervous about having kids. And in some ways, we see this in all of the novels. I mean, for obvious reasons, we'll let people go back and visit them. And it's not just twins who burst into flame. It's not just the, It's not just Roland and Bessie. I mean, you see this. I mean, we see it in Frankie. We see it in Zeke. We don't really see it in Frankie's brothers because they're afraid of nothing. Does making art take the edge off of that? Yeah, it absolutely does. I mean, you know, and I don't want to make it seem like, man, I'm just such a great parent because I'll choose my children over writing. Oftentimes it's just sheer laziness. Like the children (laughs) are there and they want me. And I just have no force of will to to demand that I make art, you know, and and honestly, it's not as good as whatever the kids would want me to do with them. So I do that. But also, yeah, I think my art has always grown alongside the anxiety of family, which is mm-hmm. family fang. We had we had just had our first son, Griff, but also I was becoming an adult mm-hmm. and I was trying to figure out, like, you're made. What happens after you're made? How do you figure out how to become a new person? And so then that was cool. And then my works then started to be like, well, how do you take care of babies? And then nothing to see here is like, how do you take care of kids? You know? And how do you protect them from the world? And how do you protect them from themselves? And that was the big shift in my work was I was so obsessed in the beginning with like, how do I take care of myself? Like, how do I keep myself from like exploding? And then after a while, I was like, you know, either I am or I'm not. I think I'm, I've figured out how to navigate this world and survive. And then the terrifying thing became, how do you keep the people you love alive? And then I was like, oh, I have a whole new set of anxieties to write about. Yeah, the kids absolutely changed that. You know, as I was navigating the real world, I was having to make peace with it in in the writing that I was doing. You know, what do you do with them? I do want to come back, though, to Fang, Family Fang and uh, Nothing to See Here. Do you have favorite moments from those books? Because I feel like you get a lot of joy. And I know there's definitely a lot of joy on your part writing um, Now is Not the Time to Panic. But... 
Can we just talk about those earlier books for a second? Because I think some folks don't know them as well as they're going to know. Now is not the time to panic. Yeah. So Family Fang, like I said, it's about performance artists who use their children as props in the work mm-hmm. that they make. And and it's a it's a I think it's a funny book. It's a it's an, a slightly absurd book, but it's also like a kind of sad book about, you know, family. Like, what does it mean to be made? But, you know, for that book, like one of the things I wanted to figure out was I don't think they're good parents, whatever. But I wanted to linger on. And I think the things I come back to in that book that I was trying to figure out is what are the moments where for like even two seconds, they felt like a real family, you know? So there's a couple of moments in that where the parents are like surprised or shocked by their children and their parents consider them artists for that brief moment. And it's usually then for just a brief moment, they're going to walk to whatever comes next. And it's the four of them in unison for just a brief moment. I tend to do that a lot, like in Nothing to See Here Too, where there's chaos But then Mm -hmm. they hold on to each other for a second and then they walk to the thing that comes next. And I always just I mean, that's the thing about parenting is it's constant chaos. But there's a brief moment where like things slow down for just a half second. Everyone sees each other. And then obviously, like you can't live in that cocoon forever. So you have to go to what comes next. But I I kind of love those moments. And I think being alive and, and loving other people, so much of it is those moments where you recollect yourself. And you're fortified for a brief moment for whatever comes next. And in both of those books, that's what I tend to run to. You also gave Zeke's parents a really nice moment that, again, I'm just going to say it was a really nice moment, but I was very pleasantly surprised by something that happens with his parents. And I was like, huh, huh, okay. And it made perfect sense. It made all the sense in the world. And especially in the context of what you just said, I'm like, yep. He had fun doing that piece. Yeah. That was one of the moments where you could just kind of see, and it's a very quiet sort of, I'm going to sneak this in moment, and yet it's really big. Yeah. I'm glad. I'm so glad that 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 resonated with you. And and I think, you know, some of that honestly is from Am's work, like Am Patchett's work, where the passage of time allows you for to surprise yourself with, with the trajectory of your life. And and this is one of the few books where like time really does go for me quite quite a bit into the into adulthood, you know, that's rare for my work. So I wanted to leave space for that. Like I'm finally writing about people getting older a little bit. So I want to be a little bit surprised by the ways in which we like reconcile the past and our future. Well, and I think too, I mean, family is the little hothouse that we can use. I mean, talk about sort of mirroring change or like blowing it up and showing you exactly what has changed because sometimes family is exactly the thing that never changes. And you're like, Oh, you people and family. I mean, I know you were saying, well, I just write these domestic books and yeah, but you can cover so much ground in that little sort of hothouse environment of family. I mean, you're covering class in this book. You're covering privilege in this book. You're covering art and consequence and, all sorts of stuff where, you know, on the surface, it may not seem like we're going to go there, but oh, you go there. <laughs> it's great. I think, <laughs> I think one of the things is I call myself a domestic writer all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think I get a little, I, I think I, I use it a little more freely just because I'm a guy. So like, I don't have to deal with like, you know, the, the kind of obviousness of, of a woman being told she writes domestic fiction. But like, I really do think of myself as a domestic writer, but I don't mean it in a pejorative or even small way. It's just that I love I love these small spaces where you try to build a home because once you have that small space and you fixed it up and you've placed your people inside of it and you've made a life, it's so tight that the slightest thing will cause combustion. And if I can keep it super small, that's why my books are also super short. If I can keep everything really small, I can touch everything and I know the exact moment that there's going to be a spark and there's going to be combustion and I'm going to get flame. Yeah. And then we get a really, really great read out of it, which thank you for all the work you do, but I'm completely obsessed with the read. <laughs> oh, thank you. I really like the way Now is Not the Time to Panic sits with nothing to see here. I feel like they're really mature books in a very nice way. Um, and Fang was fun, but you can sort of see yourself getting your, see you getting your feet. Yeah, um, finding for sure. your feet, And now it's just like, oh no. 
something, something you needed to write all the books in between is what I'm saying. You needed to write yeah. those, you got them done, you learned what you learned, and now it's just kind of like, by the way, just here are the three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love that makes me that makes me super happy. But and I also think that's incredibly astute. It, like, that's how I think of it. You know, okay, good. Okay, good, good. those first books were me, like building a lot of scaffolding or trying to like mm -hmm. protect myself so that I could write the book. And then with these last two, more and more what I'm trying to focus on is like, make it small, make it small, make mm -hmm. it small, choose a single voice, choose a mm -hmm. single character, like get everything that you can get. And don't worry so much about like, these larger conceits or these big mm -hmm. scaffolding pieces. And that's been really helpful for me. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, for forever and ever, I'm going to try to write small books, you know, because mm -hmm. that's, I think where I get my play. Yeah. But I also want people to think about short books and not small books. Cause dude, you do not write small books, but shorter books. And like, not everything needs to be 600 pages. Some things do don't misunderstand. Yes, absolutely. Some things need to be wide and expansive and very long and very heavy. That's fine. But I think it's easy sometimes for some readers to just say, well, that's only 250 pages. And I'm like, do you know what you can do in a short story? Yeah. I mean, I think the first story in Saunders' first collection is like maybe 50 pages. It's not yeah. a novella, but it's longer than your average short story. But I literally had to just sit for a while and think about it. Like, I couldn't just go into the next story because of what he does. And it's a little futuristic and it's a little, it's very George Saunders. I mean, and yeah. You know. I read that. I mean, I, I read that senior year of college. I mean, I distinctly mm -hmm. I was in my room. I got the book and I read it. And I just remember being like, you know, it's not like you were pre I was preaching or anything, but I was just like, oh, this is the thing that's going to that that I'm going to love forever, you know. And yeah. it's so great when you find when you find that sweet spot where you're like, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to put out into the world. This is it's that tenderness and it's that compassion and it's having a heart without getting treacly. Yeah, and yeah. Sicky sweet because no one needs this, or at least I don't <laughs> as a reader. I'm, I'm I don't like, I need a little bit of edge and I need a little bit of discomfort and I need a little bit of, oh man, you act okay. You did that. Okay. <laughs> I am judging you. I am, uh, I mean, I, I judge characters all the time, but I think it's really important because you can't have joy without sorrow. You can't have love without grief. Like all of these things, like you can't separate these. Like each needs the other to exist because otherwise you don't really know what to do with it. Yeah. And they're so permeable. Like it's right? not even that they're opposite sides. They're exactly right up against each other and bleeding together all the time. So it's good for me and my work to like just play to be able to use that. Right. Yeah. Life's messy. So what's next? It's strange for to consider what comes next. Um it's it's a it's just such a bizarre thing in my brain is like I almost always have the next book in the in the writing mm. of the book so mm -hmm. like honestly in Family Fang the, the main character Annie does a movie where she's a governess to children who burst into <laughs> flames and the minute I wrote that it's such a small part of the book but I was like I want that I'm gonna get that back I'm gonna come back to it and that became nothing to see here you know, and I knew that when I had the line in Family Fang of, you know, the edge is a shantytown, I was going to come back to that. And I did. And then in this book, uh, our character, Frankie, she's written an, a novel for adults that doesn't do very well. But it's about a woman who goes to pick up all of her half sisters uh, who have been fathered by, you know, her father. And the minute I wrote it, I was like, oh, I kind of want that back. And I I wanted to try to figure out. So the next book is about a group of half siblings who find out that their father basically every 10 years leaves the family and starts a new one and completely changes his identity and career reinvents himself. And then after 10 years goes away. And so a 40 year old man tracks down his half sister who's 30. And then they realize he's still alive. He's moved further West each time. So they go find the 20 year old then they find the 10 year old. And it was this thing for me where I was like, okay, I want to try some different stuff. Like I want to write a book where they don't stay in the same town for the entire book. So let me expand it. But that's super uh, nerve wracking to me. So I thought, okay, I'm going to expand it. They're going to travel cross country, but I need compression. And so they're going to be in a car together, these two people who don't know each other. And then they're picking up their half siblings. So that space is going to get more and more combustible. I was like, I can work with this. 
I can be expansive, but I can keep everything super tight, super compressed. Um, and that's just always in my head, I think, because I'm just such an anxious person and always have to protect myself in the real world. Before I start any book, I'm like, how is this going to be difficult? And where am I going to find the comfort that lets me like do the work? And so for this one, I was like, you're going to be scared of the expansion. You're going to have to learn about other cities than the town you grew up in. But you get the compression of these 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 siblings all holding on to each other and learning about each other. So that will comfort you, Kevin, as you do the hard work. And so I think that's the book. I hope so, because your eyes lit up when you first started talking about it. Your eyes got really big and really bright. And I was like, oh, no, that's the idea. Like, you may be talking yourself into this. And you kind of sort of sounded like you were talking yourself into it, but your face changed. Your entire face lit up. I was like, no, that's the idea. That's the thing. Do that thing. Because I did. I liked Frankie's adult novel that didn't work. I was like, that's a really good idea. I think a lot of people would understand exactly what that book was getting at. It's a very Kevin Wilson thing to gravitate to the failed fictional thing that I made in a book and be like, oh, I'd love that bad thing. I mean, art and reinvention, I suppose, are just basically the same thing. I mean, I'm going to let Frankie's neighbor slip and let people discover him. But like, he's a lovely guy. And the way everything comes together sort of around him um, is really terrific. And I do think, you know, why not just grab an old idea and say, well, now I get to do it differently because you're not the same person at the end of the book as you are at the start so why not just yeah. take the thing and work again but dude seriously your whole face changed it totally lit up it was awesome <laughs> it totally was awesome but in the meantime kevin wilson thank you so much for joining us on poured over now is not the time to panic is out now and hey if you haven't read family fang or nothing to see here go get them now oh thank you so much Hello readers, it's time for another TBR Top Off where we recommend books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Now Is Not The Time To Panic by Kevin Wilson. I'm Mark coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati. And I'm Madison coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Indianapolis. We've got a couple of great books to talk about today. Madison, you want to jump right in? I would love to. So I am really excited about the book I am recommending. I am recommending Looking for Alaska by John Green, who is an Indiana native. He's why I'm proud of to be from Indiana, at least. We got a lot of things going, but my favorite is John Green. I love this book because at its heart, Looking for Alaska is probably my favorite John Green novel because it's a beautiful coming of age story and a beautiful novel of like kind of showing a rebel with a cause. So you follow Pudge, who is an outcast, and then he goes to this school and he's searching for the great perhaps. He wants to live life. He's been in this little bubble and he finally gets away from his family. And now he is ready to search for that great perhaps. And he stumbles upon Alaska, who is this girl that to him is just exotic. She's like this beautiful, well-read, adventurous spirit. And she kind of adopts him into their like group of hodgepodge people at this school. Then tragedy strikes and the rest of the novel is Pudge trying to figure out what happened to Alaska. What is at the root of the tragedy that happened to her? Um, But I think what is important is that in this story, while he's so determined to find out what happens, he actually finds himself along the way. And the book is full of so many lessons that I think you can take and apply to like your own life. I remember reading this book, I was in high school and I was reading it on a Florida vacation and just kind of being like, oh, here's a character that kind of does feel similar to me, kind of outcasted, doesn't have a place. And like he found it. So I think, especially for kids around his age, it's a very, very inspiring tale that you're not weird or strange. If you don't have many friends, you just need to find that place you belong. And that is why I love Looking for Alaska by John Green. Very nice pick. I love a found family. I love being able to feel a little bit connected with somebody, even if they're fictional. Um, I think we could all use that. So nice choice. 
Well, I chose a book that I love very, very much, even though it makes me cringe so, so hard. Super Sad Love Story by Gary Steingart. It is satire. It is dystopia. It is romance. It is forced self-inspection. It is brilliant. The novel takes place in an unnervingly familiar future that is so close to our own. Personal privacy is basically non-existent. So anything from your credit history to your sexual history is on blast at all times and readily available for anybody to look at. And almost promoted and recommended that you just have all of your stuff just out there. It's pretty gross, but really not that unfamiliar. It is a tech culture society that is basically reaching critical mass. And we follow a character named Lenny who is barely hanging on. Um, He is not great at curation, which reigns supreme in the society. He doesn't really like to involve himself in the social media aspects of this world. Uh, And he still likes those old, gross, smelly things called books. So he's he's struggling hard. Um, And then he meets Eunice and everything starts to shift and change for him and for her and maybe for the world. This is a sometimes squeamish book about how close we are to a societal dumpster fire. But it's also a book about how love and compassion and humanity still linger and could perhaps rise above it all. So please, please check out Super Sad True Love Story by Gary Steingart. Two good books. I love it. Lenny's profile definitely has a book quote. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Oh my God. Oh, yeah, (laughs) of course. I love him. That's all we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning into Poured Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Uh, You can follow us at Barnes & Noble. Pretty simple. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. And I'm Madison. You can follow my home store at BN River Crossing. Thanks, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.